Well, if you missed it, my name is John. I've uh, been part of this church for a couple of years now, and I just love, really love being part of King's Church. It just feels so much like home here, and uh, it's great as well when you can stand up and speak on the back of a really great time of worship in the Lord's presence. Uh, it's been great to worship together. Um, when um, Kathy, my wife, worked for the British consulate in Paris during our time in the, the French capital, she once had to calm down a man who had turned up at the consulate in the centre of Paris absolutely beside himself because he had left a briefcase on a train. And thankfully, the man's details were marked on a label on the briefcase. And after a few inquiries with the SNCF, which is the French train operator, uh, this briefcase turned up unopened a few hours later. And it was only then that Cathy realized uh, why this man had been so distressed about losing his luggage, because he opened it up in front of all the consulate staff, and to everyone's amazement, it was chock full of banknotes. Like in a film when someone's paying a ransom, it was just absolutely rammed full of banknotes. And it was just a really... A uh, surreal moment. And you might think I'm exaggerating. You might think maybe he's just laying it on a bit, but I, I haven't just made it up. It's absolutely true, and you can ask Kathy about it afterwards. Now, it's one thing for a civil servant or a politician to mislay a small USB stick isn't it, um, on, a, on a train or something. Maybe it contains sensitive files. We hear about this sort of thing, uh, sort of mishap in the media, don't we, from time to time. But just absent-mindedly leaving a suitcase full of cash on a train, it just absolutely beggars belief. It would never leave my hand. I would, it would be tied to my hand if that was me. And what we find at the beginning of Acts chapter 12 has a similar did that really actually happen, feel to it? And of course, there's been no shortage of liberal theologians who take a pair of scissors to every passage of Scripture they don't like, which is most of it, and they just dismiss this as a complete fabrication. Uh, what we're about to read about this morning is a major security breach demanding a public inquiry. That's what would happen if it happened in Britain today. And either this is an example of incompetence on the level of the Keystone Cops, or it's an extraordinary coincidence against impossible odds, or it's a miracle that shows God's awesome power to set the captives free. So let's read it together. It's Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 17 verses. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. 
Herod intended to bring him for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken to us with authority and clarity and sufficiency in your word. And we ask now that as we come to consider this passage of scripture that you will brood over us by your spirit and bring clarity to our minds, increase our faith, increase our love for you and may we truly feast on Christ in your word. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks, Ali. That's lovely. Nice cold water. A few years ago, I read a book called The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun. Anyone read that book, The Heavenly Man? Okay, it's quite a few of you. And uh, by the way, I lent it to somebody. I never got it back. So if that was you, and you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit right now, I do forgive you, but you probably owe me a beer, okay? Uh, And the book. Uh, Now, Brother Yun is a church leader from China, and he spent years uh, getting hunted down, getting beaten up. In fact, the book chronicles his sufferings for Christ, 
and uh, eventually he was locked away for his faith. And after serving many years of a quite long custodial sentence just for leading a church, he um, broke out of Shengzhou Maximum Security Prison from which nobody had previously escaped. And he describes in his book how he heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in his cell telling him to simply get out, get up, walk out of his cell and simply walk past the heavily guarded series of prison gates and just walk out, go out the front door. And at the risk of being shot dead on the spot, he obeyed the voice of God and walked, heart pounding, straight past many prison guards through several steel gates that were inexplicably standing open. And he walked through the prison yard and finally straight out of the main gate into the streets and to safety. And Yun says in his book that it was as if he had become invisible to the guards who seemed to sort of stare straight through him as if he wasn't there. And official records from the uh, Chinese uh, prison service show that some prison officers did lose their jobs at that time for what is vaguely described as an embarrassing mishap. <laughs> and the book says that an official investigation by the Chinese government concluded that Yun received no human help in his escape. But it doesn't say anything about divine help, does it, in that report? And Brother Yun's testimony has since been confirmed by numerous other inmates who were there with him at the time, detained with him. And to this day, Brother Yun is the only person to have ever escaped from this notorious maximum security prison. Extraordinary. Now let's take a little closer look at this passage of scripture we've just read, which mirrors quite closely what happened to Yun, or rather what happened to Yun mirrors quite closely what happened to Peter. Verses one to three give us a little bit of background to set the context for us. And it says that King Herod was reigning at the time. Now, this is not the Herod you hear about in your Christmas nativity plays. It's actually not even his son, it's his grandson, uh, a similarly wicked and evil man called Herod Agrippa. And Herod, like his father and grandfather, is a kind of puppet king to Rome. He's controlled by Rome. Rome has all the strings. And Herod knows that if he lets civil unrest get out of hand on his watch and on his patch, then the Romans will just get rid of him unceremoniously and they will impose direct rule or put someone else in charge. And so to stay in power and keep his fancy palace, Herod has to keep the general population happy. And how's he going to do that? Well, he has basically two options. Number one, he can put taxes down. Classic move, always popular. But that would mean cutbacks on his own extravagant lifestyle. So that's a non-starter for Herod because he likes his fancy palace and his extravagant lifestyle. The second option is a much cheaper way to raise his popularity ratings. He just executes a villain public enemy. And so he has the idea, beginning of chapter 12, of disposing of a few Christians. It says he beheads the apostle James, uh, John's brother, 
And when he sees how much the people absolutely love that, he has Peter arrested, jailed, and set up for a show trial and execution once the Passover feast is over. So why is the general population at this time so upset with the Christians? It's because many people at that time are feeling threatened by them. Because what's happening is this, as we've seen in the previous 11 chapters of Acts, churches are growing, and that means synagogues are emptying. And that's not going down well. The successful spread of the gospel is making those Jews who have rejected Christ worried that their faith is going to die out altogether. And they're getting very anxious about this. And so Herod says, we'll have a trophy arrest. Simon Peter, the bloke in charge, and he chooses the week of the Passover to do it. Why? That's because Jerusalem is absolutely rammed full of pilgrims at the Passover. And so there'll be maximum exposure to what he's doing. It's a golden opportunity for Herod to get rid of a leading Christian, um, bump up his popularity rating by so doing, and consolidate his power. That's the background to this. And it seems that Herod is only too aware of Peter's previous escape, if you remember, in Acts chapter 5. And so just to make sure that lightning does not strike twice, he steps up the security. And big big time he does. The arrangements described in verses 4 to 6 are to help us understand this fact that any attempt at escape for Peter faces overwhelming odds against it. It is mission impossible to get out of this for Peter. Uh, Peter isn't even awake at the start of this prison break, so it's absolutely no credit to him at all. It says he's situated between two guards, meaning that he is at arm's length from being pulled back at the first movement he makes. And it says he's attached to each of them by a length of iron chain. His cell is locked and bolted. And then there are additional sentries stationed just outside the cell door, just in case. And then there's the small matter of the outer prison wall on top of that. And verse 4 says that um, Herod has got Peter guarded by four squads of four soldiers, uh, making 16. Even my maths can work that one out, 16. And they would have rotated their watch all the time, every few hours or so, to keep them fresh, keep them alert. Herod here is going really over the top to ensure that there is no possible way that Peter will get away this time. And for Peter, looking at Uh, The situation from his point of view, it just seems utterly hopeless, doesn't it? How are you going to get out of that one? Death, probably by decapitation, after a sham show trial, is just a few days away for Peter. And even Houdini would be hard pushed to escape in Peter's situation. Now, question for you. What are you facing in your life at the present time that just feels impossible. 
Maybe it's difficulties with your children. Uh, you just cannot find the way through. It may be grown-up children or little ones. Or is it the spiraling cost of living? Every time you go to the shops or fill up the car, you think, this is getting out of control. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet here. Or a marriage that's in trouble, that's hit the wall, the flame's gone out. It's not the same as it used to be. It just looks impossible to revive it to its former state. Maybe it's bad news from the doctor that you're digesting. Do you need a breakthrough today? in an impossible situation. Well, verses 7 to 11 explain to us, step by step, how the power of God is able to penetrate and unlock every door. We know that nothing is impossible for God. The Bible tells us that. We know that his voice can still any storm. We know that his power can heal any disease. We know that his authority can bring down any evil regime. And the love that he proved to us by enduring the cross can melt the heart of the hardest criminal. Jeremiah 32, 17 says this, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You hear that? Nothing is too hard for you. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. You perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day. And look, Acts chapter 12 bears the hallmarks of a factual report. Consider this. There is no attempt here to build Peter up as a kind of hero, a mythical hero, which a propaganda story might do. In fact, Peter is unceremonially woken up in verse 7 with a thump in the ribs. And the angel telling him to put on his sandals and wrap his cloak around him in verse 8 is incidental. It's a, it's an in, why, why would you put that down? Put your, uh, put your um, cloak on, put your sandals on. In other words, it appears... It's only there because somebody remembered that that's how it happened. And in verse 9, Peter is again portrayed as a pretty clueless, half-asleep guy, not Superman who is single-handedly overcoming the mighty Roman Empire. He just looks like a bit of a a nerd. Verse 10 looks similar to what Brother Yun experienced in China, just walking straight through doors that open in front of him one by one. And it isn't until verse 11 that Peter realizes it's not a dream. He thinks it's a vision like what he had in chapter 10. Or chapter 9, was it? But I think the greatest evidence of this story's authenticity is that the New Testament is honest enough to tell us about men who were imprisoned and who weren't released, but who died there like James at the beginning of this chapter, like John the Baptist says that they were executed. It didn't get out. And if every imprisonment in the Bible resulted in a miraculous release, it might look a little bit contrived and made up. But there's no attempt to hide the fact that some believers did die in prison and were not miraculously released. But this one, 
he was. And for all those reasons, I take this as a, a factual, trustworthy, true account of what happened that night. And it tells me this, and I'll need to hear this sometimes, and you do as well, that nothing, nothing but nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Make it as hard as you like, it's not too hard for God. So whatever pain you may be carrying this morning, whatever burdens you bear, whatever despair you face, whatever suffering you're going through, know this, that God is able. God is able, especially when Christians pray. Because look, verse 12 says, Peter goes back to the house of Mary, mother of John, also called Mark where many people have gathered and are praying. And while an angel escorts this dozy, half-asleep prisoner out of jail, there are Christians, we are told, who are praying fervently. Do you know what praying fervently looks like? The Greek word translated fervently an adverb, and it's in fact a medical term which was used for describing a muscle that is stretched to its extreme limits. This is prayer that is stretched as far as it can go. And the same word is used in Luke 22 for the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke writes, being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly. There's that word again, fervently, stretched. His, it says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Passionate, earnest prayer. Fervent, desperate prayer. It's an awesome weapon, friends. Desperate prayer is an awesome weapon. And Satan absolutely hates it. In the 1982 Falklands War, uh, a British paratrooper unit made an assault on a place called Goose Green, where there was an Argentinian base. But they got into big trouble, and their advance stalled. And their inspirational unit, uh, leader of this unit, a guy called uh, Colonel H. Jones, was killed. He was actually posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross for bravery. This unit had taken severe casualties, and many of their troops were down, and they were now outnumbered by the enemy by three to one. Didn't look good. The British troops were out of ammunition. They were low on supplies. They were exhausted, having been on the go for 40 hours nonstop. And they're now facing an imminent counterattack, which would certainly have crushed them, certainly. They didn't have the means to fight back. And then at this time, they were given orders from above to advance on Goose Green and attack it, but they just didn't have the resources to do it. They couldn't do it. It was impossible. They were in real trouble. And two of the soldiers approached their new leader, Major, um, a man called Chris Keeble, Major Chris Keeble, and they said, what are we going to do? And uh, Keeble was a devout Christian. And he said, just give me a few minutes, will you? 
And he went off to a place which had previously been shelled. There was gorse burning. Smell of death was all around him. And he just knelt down in this place with charred remains all around him. And he took a prayer from his pocket that he had uh, written himself before the conflict. And he just, in, that, in a moment, he just gave himself afresh to God and said, Lord, I'm yours. If this is my last day, then may I do it serving you and doing it to the best of my ability. It was, it was just desperation, asking the Lord for help. And in that time, in that moment, God spoke to him. And he's sure it was God speaking to him because what came into his mind was so left field. It was so not what he would have thought of. Uh, he would never have come up with this. God said to him, tomorrow you're going to ask the Argentinians for their surrender. So he went back to his troops and said, right, what we're going to do, this, what we're going to do is this, lads. Tomorrow we're going to ask them for their surrender. And his guys just looked at him. They just looked at him astonished. The next morning, they took a couple of Argentinian prisoners of war and they walked them down to Goose Green with the message that British reinforcements were imminent, which was a bluff. They weren't. And uh, the message was to avoid an absolute bloodbath, they were offering terms for their surrender. And the Argentinians accepted. And so the battle ended right there and then without a bullet being fired and no more bloodshed. See, amazing things can happen when we seek God. And God speaks and God intervenes and God brings his authority and his power and his deliverance into a situation. Amazing things can happen when we seek God in times of the greatest pressure. Well, the believers here in Acts chapter 12 were praying like Chris Keeble prayed, fervently, passionately, wholeheartedly, desperately, energetically. They were praying also like Jesus prayed in the garden the night he was betrayed. When they prayed, the answer was yes. And there was Peter at the door. That's why Peter was released. When Jesus prayed, the answer was no. Lord, take this cup away from me. No. And that's why we're here today. Because Jesus drank the cup of suffering that God did not take away when he went to the cross and he suffered and died so my sin and yours can be taken away. And then he rose again and he is alive. But in both cases, that stretched muscle of praying led to a great release in different ways. Release from jail for Peter and praise God, eternal release from hell for us who believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So fervent prayer. Do you want to pray like Jesus prayed? Amen. Three of us. Good. <laughs> and in fact, listen, you don't even need great faith. God blesses faith. Terry Virgo here a few weeks ago was saying, God actually blesses faith disproportionately. He talked about Hebrews 11 and the rogues gallery and people like Jephthah and Samson who were in there. Uh, they were rogues, but they had faith. And God blessed them in extraordinary ways. God does bless faith, but God also blesses obedience. So did these Christians here have super strong faith? Well, the evidence is they did not. 
They were praying obediently, but not, it turns out, with very much faith at all. Seems to me it was one of those prayer meetings, I've been to quite a few of these, where there's more heat than light. Do you know what I mean? Ever been to one of those? I always imagine this prayer meeting as a kind of a stonking pray up. You know, all these people gathered together, revivalist style gathering, fiery language, lots of shouting, lots of do I hear an amen? And people saying amen. But of course, the comic element here is that when Peter actually turns up at the door, they don't even believe it's him. The thing they've been praying for, they don't believe it's happened. Clearly, these people are not expecting their prayer to be answered, at least not anytime soon. But listen, even with a little faith, Jesus said a little mustard seed's enough. Even a little faith, God is a great God. And where there is prayer, he is there. I wonder if you've been praying for something for years and you're still awaiting the answer from God. Some of you know we have uh, four children. We have one of them, our son, one of our sons. um, We had not seen him in years he sort of cut himself off from us um, about uh, eight, ten years ago. And we, we prayed day after day, sometimes in desperation, sometimes wondering if we would ever live to see the answer to our prayers, praying that we would be reconciled and we'd see each other again, uh, just silence from heaven month after month, year after year. But three months ago, out of the blue, he made contact with us. And uh, a month later, we met up in Paris together. God is faithful. God is so good. Uh, Pete Gregg from 24-7 Prayer says this, often the church is less than honest about unanswered prayer. But when you read the book of Psalms, half of it is lament. And the word Israel, he says, means struggle. Sometimes prayer is a struggle. Sometimes it's crying out to God in pain. He says, we've been baptized into a faith that is about fighting and wrestling. And he gives the example of Queen Bertha of Kent. Don't know how many of you know about Queen Bertha of Kent. I didn't know anything about her. But she arrived in England from France in about 570 AD to marry King Ethelbert. King Ethelbert, who was a pagan, pagan king of this country. But uh, her parents would only let him marry her, or let her marry him rather, if she could freely practice her Christian faith. So King Ethelbert quite fancied her. He said, yeah, that's fine. So he restored this abandoned church chapel in Canterbury so that Bertha could have a place to pray. 17 years of prayer later, 40 monks turned up from Rome with the purpose of introducing the gospel to England. And uh, they were welcomed by Queen Bertha. They even used her little prayer chapel as the base for their evangelistic mission, which is why Canterbury has such a a significance in the church in England today. Anyway, her husband, King Ethelbert, reluctantly agreed to meet these Christian monks. Uh, But over time, he converted to Christianity. He responded to the gospel. And as a result of his conversion, and thanks to Queen Bertha's years of prayer, the gospel spread like wildfire across the whole of England, and a great movement broke out, and it later officially became a Christian country. 
17 years of prayer. See what God does. And Queen Bertha was an amazing woman. She was devoted to Jesus. She persevered in faith. And God used her powerfully, miraculously to impact a nation. I'm an extrovert, which means I get energy from being with people. I I, that's, what, that's what gives me energy. Uh, as such, I personally find it much easier to pray with others than I do praying alone. Praying alone for me is hard work, really hard work. Others of you are introverts and it's the other way around. I'm also an activist and that means I find it really hard to slow down. I'm always on the go. I like working long hours, gives me a buzz. But some years ago, I learned this lesson. When I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. Yeah? When I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. And there's just no shortcuts if we're going to see God move in power amongst us. Every revival, everyone is preceded by prayer. And the spiritual breakthroughs that we long for at King's and in Darlington almost certainly won't happen without prayer. That's the way God works. Pray for your neighbors. Pray at work. Pray in the streets for the people that live there as you walk through them or drive around. Pray when you can't get to sleep at night. God probably woke you up to do that. Uh, Acts 12 also says pray with others. Pray in your life groups. Pray in your home groups. Pray with your children. Pray in triplets. Pray as couples. Pray with friends. And keep going. Keep going. Even when nothing seems to be happen, happening. Year upon year. Keep going. Keep going. Church leader Jim Watkins once says this. A river can cut through a rock, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. Isn't that good? So never give up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God of the impossible. Thank you that you are a God also who has bound up your sovereign purposes in our praying for reasons we do not understand, but that's the way you do it. And Father, right now, I want to, I want to, well, let's, let's, if you are facing the impossible in whatever it is, I gave you some examples earlier. If you're facing the impossible right now, look to God. Just reach out and trust him. Say, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. It looks impossible, but nothing is too hard for you. Just say that in your spirit to God right now. Resolve that nothing is impossible for God. And then if you, like virtually everyone I know, myself included, find prayer difficult, find it hard, find it a, um, a struggle at times, Ask God to give you right now a new passion, a new fervency, a new authority in your prayer. New faith, an increase of it. A new obedience in the regularity of it. He 
If you feel God's been speaking to you for, for a moment, I'm not going to ask you to stand or come to the front, anything like that. Time is short, but just lift your head to the Lord right now. Look to him and be radiant and receive from him. Offer back to him. And Lord, meet us in this moment, we pray, as we come to a close. Meet us, Lord, we pray.